Welcome to Inside the Bradfield Centre. I'm James Parton, the Managing Director of the Bradfield. And I'm Adelina Chalmers, the Geek Whisperer. I build bridges between tech and other business functions. Joining us today is Phil Nunn, who is the founder of JumpTech, who enable the installation of electronic vehicle chargers. a lot of good questions for Phil today. What are you looking forward to asking him, Adelina? Well, I'm actually looking to finding a bit more about if he was was to look back at himself when he was starting out, because now he's been a serial entrepreneur, not just his latest company, but also he set up several others that were successful. I'd love to hear what are his top three pieces of advice he would give to himself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm obviously keen to understand, you know, why Cambridge, you know, he's been based in Cambridge for a long time, built a number of businesses here, invested in businesses in Cambridge. So looking forward to hearing uh, Phil's thoughts around the local ecosystem Um, and just generally, you know, how is his business doing? Um, The impact of COVID-19 and uh, what the opportunity looks like in in the electric vehicle space. I'm sure it's going to be a good conversation. So welcome to another episode of Inside the Bradfield Centre. Joining us uh, this time is Phil Nunn, the founder of JumpTech. Thanks for coming on the show, Phil. Pleasure. Thanks for asking me. To get everyone warmed up, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, you know how you, you found yourself uh, founding JumpTech and the journey you've taken to get there? I'll, uh, I'll try and make it reasonably brief. I could ramble on that one quite a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> originally, uh, I was brought up in Croydon in South London. Um, till I was 16. Um, always liked the idea of business. I don't know where I got it from, really. My mother's a music teacher and my father's a medical statistician. So, um, But I was always like having little enterprises. I think my first one was probably uh, selling chickens and ducks eggs to the neighbours, which in Croydon in the, in the uh, early 80s was, uh, <laughs> was a rare thing. So that actually went down reasonably well. Um, and I think I moved on to, to uh, a car washing business that I used to do the weekends, employing kids from school and stuff, which was uh, good fun and, and reasonably lucrative. Um, but then I got 16, my parents moved to, um, to Uganda in East Africa. Um, so, uh, up and off to boarding school, um, and ended up doing a degree in agriculture, um, which surprises quite a lot of people. Um, that would have been 1991, I think, something like that. Okay. So chickens, agriculture was the <laughs> bit of a rural upbringing in, in Croydon. So Croydon's quite urban, right? But you're on a farm. <laughs> Exactly, and uh, yeah, that, that works out quite well because you couldn't get chickens. All the chickens in those days were battery battery farms, so um, um, they were they were popular. Um, but yeah, so then from uh, there, I ended up um, working for uh, a Land Rover dealership in Swindon, um, doing their marketing, believe it or not, and then moving to Cambridge in two thousand in the dot com boom to do uh, a startup with some friends from school that had the. Uh, classic of uh, business starting too early um it was an online shopping service um actually we launched in the trinity center which was at those times called the Cuton forum run by amanda Stavely. um and we launched on several sites in the in cambridge science park and then across bp head office uh, british telecom industrial park uh, british american tobacco but we couldn't really make it work because uh, in 2000 2001 2002 online shopping wasn't the volume we needed um so we ended up winding that business up 
Um, so I ended up working for a startup in Westwick, just outside Oakington, um, selling mobile phone software um, to mobile phone operators for backup your names and numbers. Went from there to uh, a Californian startup to sell email to mobile phone operators again, uh, which what bought my Nokia. And uh, I think I was a Nokia for four or five years selling software um, for white label email, basically competing with BlackBerry, um, mostly into the Middle East. Uh, main delight was in Dubai uh, and the Nordic region. So a lot of time in, in Scandinavia and uh, uh, Nordic region. Um, didn't really fit into the corporate world, um, but learned a huge amount in that time. Um, and uh, had the opportunity to take voluntary dance in 2009. Um, so I left Nokia in 2009 and uh, set up my previous business then, uh, which was Qton. And the reason it's Qton is because <laughs> there's a, bit of a story there, but I renewed the um, the domain name when the uh, Qton forum in Other Science Park went into administration, and I renewed it in my name. So I had a fourletter.com to start my new business, um, which I used. Um, and we built text messages solutions for farmers in Uganda to try and help them communicate and get uh, better value for their crops, provide education and so forth. Sold that into quite a lot of the local uh, indigenous uh, NGOs, um, but really struggled um, getting traction. So ended up moving back to the UK, trying to do commuting, but still couldn't get it to work. And the business basically pivoted um, into goodness knows number of different types of projects. Um, we did text message feedback for pubs in the Old Spring and the Milton Arms. Um, uh, yeah, surprising list of, of uh, software projects, uh, but ended up building a field service management solution for metering, um, which ended up being um, the main solution used by a lot of the installers in the UK for the smart meter rollout. Um, National Grid used it, still use it, Ogo Energy, etc. Um, and that business was acquired in 2016 by Smart Rating Systems, PLC Glasgow. Um, and I managed two years of my own out, but when I sold the business, I bought an electric car, and very much realised that the uh, there's a real challenge to get the charge point installed. Um, I think it was 21 emails to and from the installer. The whole process was very, very tedious. Um, it did take me a little while to realise, about nine months. But after about nine months, I realised that the software that we built for metering was actually highly applicable to uh, low-carbon technologies such as EV charge points. So decided to uh, to leave SMS um, and sort of jump tech, um, really with a view with enabling installers to be able to scale. Um, one of the things that was clear from my metering experience was if you were to try and run teams of 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, or you know, 100 engineers, you need really good systems and processes. That's what we built at Qton, and that's what we could see was going to be necessary for the low carbon space um, and for EV charge points. So, yeah, set about building up a new software platform. Um, uh, and uh, and today, yeah, that's how we got where we are with, uh, with the software platform for EV charge point installers. Actually, I have an electric car as well, so I'm really interested about this. Uh, and it was uh, PodPoint that installed my charging point. So can you tell me actually a bit more about, uh, is, it, is your system in operation with EV char um, charging installers now, or is it in development? No, it's been in use for around 18 months, actually. So we got an MVP out very quickly. Um, the key area that we, that we started with was the... Um, self-survey piece so when you get charge point installed there's a load of information that the installer needs to know um they need to know what your maximum demand could be in the property so have you got any high demand appliances have you got a sauna have you got a hot tub have you got an electric shower how many ovens have you got um then you see a photo of the incoming uh, main fuse called the fuse cutout they need to know what, what, what 
what that's rated at. Um, they need photos of electricity meter, all this stuff. So the first thing we did was build a very, very straightforward self-survey tool so that the installers could send a text to the customer. They could just follow the wizard, complete all the information, go straight back to the installer. Second area we addressed was the uh, was the, the back office workflow where there's a whole lot of effort around completing all the grant documentation. So um, the Office for Low Emission Vehicles, OLEV, have a, a grant document that you have to complete to get um, up to £500 off your charge point. It's a total nightmare to fill out. Um, it's also a total nightmare for the installer. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and anybody who's been near that starts growing I straight remember. away. Um, and it's certainly been very apparent. I have nightmares. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to document, right? The worst thing about that is if anyone fills out any piece of that incorrectly, wrong date, doesn't cross a T, dot an I, then OLEV reject those documents. On on average, they reject a third of all the documents. And that absolutely kills the cash flow for the installers who've already paid for the charge point but haven't got the grant money back. So we automated the process of completing that grant documentation, completing the documentation for the electricity networks has to go back to the uh, district network operators who run the electricity networks. And basically, we could get the time down the back office from around four hours down to uh, well under an hour um, for the administration for an install. And if we look into scale of business out, that becomes absolutely critical. So we signed up probably the one of the largest independent installers in the UK. Um, the market's very much Podpoint, BP Charge Master, a couple of others, Charge EV, and then uh, sort of five or six uh, other larger independent installers. Those are the ones we targeted. Um, we've signed all of those, but one up now. Um, so we've got yeah, a lot of the Legion charge point installers are on the on the platform, and the uh, and we're in advanced discussions with Podpoint as well, um, who I believe probably have over fifty percent of the the UK market um, themselves on the domestic side. So um, yeah, so we ended up with uh, a self survey tool, a back office workflow management piece, and then a mobile app for the engineers in the field as well, which is very much like what we built at Qt on the previous business where engineers basically can open the app, see what they've got to do today, and they'll be very prescriptive about the way they do the install, making sure they do the right risk assessments, making sure it's compliant, collecting all the photos, customer signatures, automatically capturing the signatures on the um, OLEF documentation for the grants, and sending that all back. So between those three pieces, self-survey, back-office workflow, and the mobile app for the engineers, we can basically manage the whole job end-to-end, completely paperless, no need for any emails, telephone calls or anything. And that's really where the value is because those installers can then suddenly start scaling up without having to grow their back office teams. It feels like good timing with the push towards electrification um, and obviously the you know the country's emission targets. So uh, what does the opportunity look like for you at the moment? And maybe kind of like a second part to the question, are you just focused on the UK or are you looking internationally as well? It's a very good question. We're, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge for me to look globally just because it's such a massive opportunity, but it is absolutely there. And uh, we are in discussion, certainly for pan-European rollouts with some of the large charge point manufacturers. So um, our potential customers are quite diverse. So obviously, initially, it's installers, but we provide, because we enable um, the control and the visibility of uh, the installer charge points, we're also heavily engaged in with conversations with the big six energy suppliers, the big charge point manufacturers. One of our companies is a lease company. Um, so all these guys have the problem. And we're more now selling to the guys who need installers managed and then pumping volume through our platform than selling to installers. When we do that, a lot of the charge point manufacturers are global. And um, and then they say, well, we could just use this in Germany, Italy, in Spain, Norway, etc. So um, we're engaged in quite a few of those in those conversations as well. And uh, similarly for for battery storage, which is the other thing it's used for quite a bit as well. So companies that are putting domestic battery storage into properties, it's a very similar install process. 
uh, very similar customer base. Um, and yeah, the numbers are, are huge. Um, when we, I, I always say the most important thing when you start a business is the timing. And that's really the thing I learned from, from the, uh, the, the, the Jump Please business we did in, in 2000, where we had an amazing team, had a brilliant idea, built some incredible tech. Um, people absolutely, uh, absolutely loved it, but um, it, it was just too early, you know, and we were 10 years too soon. Um, Qtel, on the other hand, built a, a platform for field service management for metering, and uh, smart metering came along. And suddenly, like there's suddenly 54 million meter points, or whatever it is, needs to be changed in the UK. Everyone's scrambling around trying to scale up installers from 20 to 100 or 200 engineers. It's like we we're banging the right right place at the right time. So I, I always feel that's really important. And I guess for us, uh, and then one of the reasons that I, I thought this idea for, for JumpClick was a good one was um, it was an area that was going to naturally very much grow. It was an area that was subsidised and driven by the government, um, and it's an area I completely believed in. So um, I'm a bit of a petrol head, always enjoy sort of performance cars, track days and stuff like that. And uh, But the minute I built my first electric car, it's like, you know, there's no way back. It was, I think I think my wife's car was a Freelander 2 at that point. I think it was three weeks and then it was sold. It was like gone, like kind of that. <laughs> so you can't basically go back once you buy an EV. I feel exactly the same, absolutely the same. So I'm really delighted you mentioned timing because it's one of the key things that I – I talk to people about when it comes to pitching for investment. I say to them, why is this the right time to start a business now and not in six months' time or six years ago? Um, I wanted to ask you because you, you, you have a lot of experience with a lot of companies. So you, you're, you're essentially a serial entrepreneur. Um, looking back, what advice would you give to yourself just starting out? Because you mentioned you know, the business in 2000. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think you've got to just, Believe in, in yourself is one of the one of the main things. Um, I think for me, a, a big thing was um, you know I, I didn't do that well at school. Um, if you took that as a as a metric for your for your ability, I think you'd probably not get very far. So I think for me, it was about trusting, being being able to trust my intuition um, and be able to trust my judgment and and really just go with that gut feel. When, when I was uh, doing the earnouts at SMS, having sold Qton, I had like four or five ideas that I was playing with. And I there wasn't any kind of particularly rational, logical reason for why I didn't run with the ones that I had uh, as an idea prior to JumpTech. Um, but the JumpTech one just felt right. And um, and it was very much that that was the reason that I, I, I pursued it. So I think, I think people should learn to trust their intuition and trust their judgment and trust what they... Um, what they see and what they feel. Um, for me, it's such a big thing. I even sent my nine-year-old son uh, on an intuition course, actually, uh, in London, where they teach them to listen to that intuition. And uh, it absolutely blew my mind. Um, by the end of that weekend, there was kids there colouring in pictures that they had no idea what they were with the bright colours of the um, of the template above, playing noughts and crosses, blindfolded, beating their parents and all sorts. Um, it was incredible. And I and I, and I believe so strongly in that intuition that I really wanted to to encourage that uh, in my son because it's it's one of the things that really is not tested at school or valued. And so for me, like that's always been a really, really important part of um, of deciding of my decision making process. Um, so I think I'd have I've told myself <laughs> in, uh, previously to to trust that, to not worry about business plans. Um, I think those can be quite intimidating, quite scary. I've never written a business plan. I don't have the intention of writing a business plan. Um, 
for me, that would mean probably potentially missing the site opportunities that may come along. I think it's so hard to predict where things are going to go and what those opportunities were. I would never have included National Grid as a customer in the early days at Qton, um, and that would not be my plan. I could have missed it if I'd had a plan that I was very carefully executing on. So, um, yeah, for me, it's about, you know, focusing on, on, on what feels right, focusing on that intuition, and then just persevering. Um, you know, I think I did Qton for two years before, three years, probably before I earned any money out of that business at all. Um, so, um, but just, yeah, just, just cracking on. I think it's Tom Billy who says, um, the struggle is guaranteed, but the success is not. And for me, that means that it's really important that you're in, enjoying what you're doing as well. If you're not enjoying the process, um, then you're probably not doing the right thing. Um, and for me, that that's really about un- understanding where you get your where you get your energy from, um, and that can make a huge difference to like your ability to ride out the really really tedious bits that you have to do when you start a business. And there's lots. I think. I mean, I th- that's really fascinating listening to you kind of describe that because, you know, I think I think we all get caught up and there's so much content out there and advice to start up uh, founders or or aspiring entrepreneurs around how to go about doing these kinds of things. And I think that's largely linked into your need to raise money, either from an angel investor or a VC. So you kind of get very much into that mindset of business planning and, you know, kind of having everything mapped out. So it sounds like you've bucked that trend. Is that because you're kind of, you're bootstrapping your businesses? Have you raised money or have you kind of just decided to go independently and do your own thing? I just think raising money is just like, it's so alluring. And people, but it effectively ends up being the job. Like, if you're not careful, that's what you spend your whole time doing, and, and then you're not actually creating value. And and then at the end of that, you now own less of your business, and you're accountable to someone. So you might as well go and get a job. Now I know it's not quite like that, but that's how that's how it feels to me. And the other thing is that um, uh, I believe that people spend money from investors in a very very different way to the way they spend their own money. Um, and I think also you end up being much less disciplined in extracting cash from customers, which is actually the best way to define the value in the product. So if you go and raise a load of cash, you can go and build whatever you think is a good idea. If you don't raise any cash, but you have to go to your customers and basically demonstrate value, and that is only demonstrated by the fact they're going to part with money. So that's not all your mates down the pub saying, hey, yeah, that's a really good idea. That's like someone signing a contract and saying, I'll commit some cash. That's the test for whether it's a good idea or not. And so then that ends up forming the product. So at Qton, we had no choice. We grew the business organically. Um, we, we didn't see a need to raise money. I didn't want to be accountable to anybody. Um, and whenever we demo the product to anybody in the metering space, they're like, wow, this product does exactly what we need. It's like, yeah, that's because every feature in there has been paid for by a customer who saw enough value in it to part with some cash. Not somebody sat down going, oh, wouldn't it be nice if... Which ends up with a sweet shop list of like you know features. So, yeah, for me that was a, a really big part of it. So, um, very much organic growth. I have raised some money for for this business, um, mainly from people who really really wanted to be involved and people whose um, input I, I value. Um, but certainly in no great hurry to rush out and uh, and, and take money from from VCs or external uh, investors. Otherwise, no, I think it's really important to get that perspective because. You know, obviously, we do a lot of work with the university, for example. So it's important that, you know, kind of uh, budding entrepreneurs in the student ranks, you know, hear that there are other ways to achieve your goals. Right. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. And like that, that sacrifice. And, you know, I went from a extremely well paid job in Nokia 
um, earning crazy, you know, corporate sales um, uh, in software salary to a startup where I didn't pay myself for three years, got rid of the nice cars, stopped skiing, stopped going on holiday, everything. But that makes you focus. Um, and it also makes the reward at the end fantastic. So, um, you know, it was nine years um, building that business. But when I sold it, um, that was uh, absolutely fantastic. And then you could really enjoy that moment as well. Um, and the other thing is, I guess, also that if you're not um, having to give equity away to investors, you can give it to your team. And for me, that's also quite uh, an important part as well. Mm, I, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you've just said, by the way. Uh, it's so refreshing to hear that perspective. But I see you invested yourself at least in three companies, uh, from what I know of your background. So could you give us an idea, a bit more information about um, your the way you invest in companies? Why do you invest in them? Um, what, what's your position? What attracted you to those sorts of businesses? Anything you can tell us would be, I think, really interesting. Okay. They're quite diverse and tends to make people laugh. So some of you will, will know one of them, which is Deuce, which is the mobile hair salon, which is uh, in the good old days outside the Bradfield Centre on a Thursday. Now, that is a service I'm desperate for, having been at home for five weeks. <laughs> exactly. I think we all are, James. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's going to have uh, a, a bit of a challenge flattening that curve when that comes out the other end, for sure. Um, and I think I think that's it's a good example of uh, so Phil who started Deuce um, he used to cut my hair in his parents' spare bedroom he was always looking to start a salon in Cambridge and uh, and we were having the conversation I was saying to him look if you start a salon in Cambridge you've got rent and rates you've got the, probably the colleges owning the property it's like you know it's really really competitive it's gonna be tough when you go mobile and I didn't really envisage anything particularly uh, funky or glamorous and he came up with the idea of the airstream. And, uh, and you know, he's, he's got a great, great sense of style around that stuff. So, um, and so for me, it was about saying, well, if I can help and enable somebody to, um, to follow their dream and to start that by supporting them uh, financially in some small way, then that, that's, that's, that's exciting for me as well. So I supported that business by essentially funding the, the acquisition of uh, the purchase of that first Airstream trailer. Um, and that was just because I, I knew that, that Phil was a really, really hard worker. I knew that was his dream. It was a significant amount of capital that was going to be hard to raise um, any other way. And it was a capital-intensive business. It was a, you know, challenging just to, to, to save that money up. Um, and, um, and so it made a whole lot of sense to me to, uh, to enable that to happen. So um, I invest in that business. It's doing incredibly well. Now, second trailer in the city of London in, in Broadgate Circle, which is probably the best place you could imagine probably on the planet, actually, for a, a mobile hair salon, um, right under UBS, um, doing really well. It's got three seats um, in that one. Um, but my involvement in the business is very, very hands-off. Um, yeah, Phil will come to me if he, uh, if he wants to catch up or a chat. Um, um, but, you know, I very much uh, leave it leave it him to, uh, to run that business. Um, the other two are businesses that um, I guess... I met the the founders and just really, really got on with them. Um, I felt we were very aligned culturally, um, which seems to be quite rare. We, we seem to be very much kind of you know, focused on, on sort of purpose-driven businesses, um, very much value their team. Um, and so, yeah, made, made investments in those businesses. So at that point, those are both uh, uh, more established. Um, so uh, Mobile Worker Plus does parking solutions 
um, enforcement, etc., and uh, and the other businesses company called uh, Regenerative and Promix, which does uh, protein shakes, um, but without any of the additives, using native whey from grass-fed cows in Australia. And there's a whole sales pitch there. Um, but it's very much about supporting the guys in that business that I just really got on with and, and really liked and just really want to be part of it. So um, my involvement with those two businesses is really. When they're doing sort of the larger deals, um, we'll have a call, go through the, the, the pricing proposals together and stuff, um, and, and just bounce ideas around. Um, but there's no kind of like formal accountability there uh, in any way. That's really interesting. And, and it kind of builds into this next question. I mean, it, it sounds like you spent the vast majority of your working career in Cambridge and you're, you know, you're now also investing in Cambridge businesses. What, what's special about Cambridge? You know, what? Why have you stayed in the region? Why do you think it's so exciting to be in the tech sector in Cambridge? I guess I, I like Cambridge as a city. Um, I think though, um, there's there's definitely a piece where your business has some sort of inherent credibility by being in Cambridge, which is valuable. Um, and and you know, interesting when I sold the uh, sold Qton to SMS, they then created you know SMS Technology Centre in uh, in Cambridge um, with the Cambridge name attached as, as part of the business. So um, I think I think the, the 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 brand of Cambridge as part of your business is valuable. Um, but I also think just the the networking opportunities, the people you can meet, um, and then also you know recruitment. Um, Recruitment's tough, um, definitely, and it's very competitive. Um, so you're not going to get guys to cheap, but at least you will be able to find uh, good software developers. And uh, I'm a big believer in in hiring sort of fewer, very senior, capable guys um, who are just absolutely passionate about what they do. And that's been um, it was challenging at, at one stage in Qton when we grew very rapidly, um, but I wouldn't have wanted us to try and do that um, anywhere else. So I think that's also uh, a real benefit of Cambridge. Um, and also, you know, we. Uh, do a lot, of, a lot of business in in London. You know, to get in and out of London easily is definitely definitely valuable part of that as well. Uh, so, Phil, I mean, obviously, in the current situation with the COVID nineteen lockdown, has it affected your business in any way, or is it business as usual? Yeah, I mean, it has affected it. Um, I think uh, when the, when the sort of locking down started, if you like, I I was definitely aware of businesses either kind of going, oh, well, we're just going to have to like you know shut up shop for a bit and like see what happens or um i thought there's a real opportunity to say like you know what can we do in this time when we look back at this period what are we going to have achieved in it and i i was just keen to decide that we would uh look back on it and say that was the best thing that ever happened to our business and uh, and just see it as a as a huge opportunity um it's really played out in that we've been able to engage with the the larger corporates better so a lot of those very, very large uh, blue chips and corporates spend all their time, in my view, sat in meetings um, unnecessarily or traveling around the country, not necessarily being hugely productive. I'm sure they wouldn't necessarily disagree with me. Um, and actually better get them on the phone and get them on calls. And so suddenly we're going to spend a lot more time uh, with companies, uh, with the larger companies who otherwise would struggle. And then a lot of the installers who are really, really busy and hectic um, are often too busy for us to, uh, to to find time to chat to us. Um, have had the time as well. So we've been able to engage with our with with our prospective customers and with our customers uh, really well because they're having a chance to take a breath. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just seeing it as an opportunity to come out the other side um, uh, bigger and, and stronger and with a better product than we would have otherwise. So James knows me um, that I really like to get three bullet points takeaways for people. Um, so can you tell us, Phil, what are your three key learnings from your 
past as a serial entrepreneur, uh, looking back, what advice you'd give yourself when you, if you were just starting out? I think specifically, um, and, and, and these are anecdotal to me, but, but hopefully they'll be helpful to, to others as well. One is not to fear the competition. I think when it's particularly you know, you've got a new idea and, and people put so much value on the, on ideas and then you see that someone else is doing something similar and you get this sick feeling in the pit of your stomach and you think, oh, no, someone else is doing it. People get really protective about them. Every single time that's happened to me, it's ended up being nothing or the product's rubbish, or there's just plenty of space for both of us, and it's not been an issue. So um, I've had to constantly remind myself of that. The competition is never what it seems. They might have really nice brochures, really nice websites. They might have a great product. Um, they might not have as, uh, as good a team or whatever. So just not, not, not seeing the competition for how it looks, but just seeing how it plays out and, uh, and not being afraid of it. The second one, I think, was, uh, and this is very specifically, I guess, in, 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 in Jump Leads, where we had some great opportunities to work with other companies, but they wanted us to use their brand, and we were like emotionally attached to our brand. Looking back on it, that just seems insane. So it's easy to get emotionally attached to names and brands and all this kind of stuff that you put all this effort into. But fundamentally, you know, if you can ask yourself, what's the business need? The answer may not be that the brand or, um, or the name or things you've created are, are that valuable. I think the other one is really about um, you know, finding good people to spend time with um, and, and networking. Um, you know, if you can if you can go and work for someone for free, um, that experience and those connections and those network they'll spend forever. Like you'll be able to 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 benefit from those forever. If you go and work for someone because you want the money, you'll spend that once. So I think it's really valuable to really focus on how you can learn, learn, learn. Don't limit yourself by the guy that you think you are, the girl you think you are. I always saw myself as a sales guy. And uh, I remember talking to a, um, a coach I had, and I was like, yeah, I'm a sales guy. I just ended up running a business. That self-talk, I think, is really, really unhelpful. Um, and so over time, I've, I've learned to, uh, that that's not the case and, uh, and to change that self-talk. So um, have a growth mindset. Be determined to learn, learn, learn. You can become the person you want to be. You can learn the skills that you need to learn and not to limit yourself by, uh, by how you might have seen yourself in the past. So I think that's probably my three bullets. I would love to speak to you, Phil, for many, many hours to come, but I'm aware that we're, um, we're trying to keep these episodes quite short. Uh, so is there something that you would like to tell us about that's coming up and it's exciting? It's very hard to know right now. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I would say is, like you are, I'm a, a huge advocate of, of electric vehicles. Um, and so if I was plugging anything, it would be go and try one when you can. Um, I think the biggest challenge with EVs is education. People like just perceiving them in the wrong way, thinking they need to charge them up like they need to fill them up with petrol. Um, and so my suggestion to people would be to, to jump on the YouTube and follow the uh, fully charged channel run by uh, Robert Llewellyn of X Scrappy Challenge and Red Dwarf. Um, it's very engaging, hugely informative, and I think will help people get a much better understanding of just how great electric vehicles are. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I absolutely adore my electric vehicle. And I'd love to have a longer chat about these sometime as well. <laughs> so, Phil, thanks so much for spending the time to come on the uh, the show. Um, really appreciate it. It's been a really great conversation. Yeah, I absolutely loved it as well, Phil. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to catch up. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, too long. I'm looking forward to all getting back into the building together.
One of the key things that I was really um, interested in was when he said that um, trust your judgment and how he sent his nine-year-old son to a course on intuition. I've never heard that before. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, the top three takeaways um, for me was don't fear the competition. You know, you hear so many people um, worrying about the competition. And I loved how he unpacked that and said, well, actually, you discover their product is not necessarily as good or the market is big enough for both of you or whatever. And I just thought that was brilliant because it's such an easy one to worry to worry about. Um, and also the fact that it, they had so many opportunities with other companies, but they had to work under their brand and how he had hesitations about that and how looking back now he realized that that wasn't a, a necessarily the right thing to do. Um, and I see this in a lot of companies in Cambridge. You know, they're very keen to make sure they have their brand and their ideas and their everything. Um, but actually really looking at what's fit for purpose. And I thought it was brilliant that he touched on that as well. And um, mentioning again, finding good people to work with. Um, I thought that was fantastic to see him mention the fact that you need to um, invest your time and money in people that you can learn from and have this um, attitude of learn, 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 which I just thought was was brilliant. Um, and I and I wish more, more people said it, to be honest. Yeah, and, and just building on that, you know, I really liked, you know, Phil having, I guess, well, having a, an opinion which kind of bucks the trend of all of the stuff that you read as a startup entrepreneur or, or a, an aspirational entrepreneur around, you know, the need to raise money, to have a business plan, to have a polished pitch, you know, all of those kinds of things that are drilled into us. And actually, you know, Phil has taken a quite a different approach to that. So, um, yeah, really interesting to, you know, get his perspective on the world and how he's built his businesses over these last few years. So thanks for listening to this episode. You can find out more information about the Bradfield Centre and find more episodes by going to bradfieldcentre.com. You'll find the podcast under events and community. Awesome.